This is God's word. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honour, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger of all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning brotherly love, you've no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Let's leave the reading of God's word there for a few moments. <clears throat> we're, we're sort of midway through now, probably just over halfway, our study through First Thessalonians. Uh, overall, it's called Transforming Community, and we're sort of highlighting as we go through the various ways that the church, the local church, is to be a place where transformation takes place. It should be our common experience that everybody who is truly and uh, really engaged with a local church experiences transformation in themselves and sees it among one another. And that's, that's, that's uh, the work of God through the Holy Spirit. We've seen that as we go through uh, up till now. Because the Spirit is with the church and with each of us, he transforms us bit by bit, more and more into the image of Jesus. And so we get now to um, a, a really sort of uh, practical part of the letter. From now on, chapter 4 and chapter 5, the next chapter, which is the two last chapters, Paul is very specific. I guess you could call it ethics. He talks about how to live your life for God and how that should look in the local church. And so we've just read here um, these first four verses, sorry, first 12 verses of this chapter um, about two specific areas um, where the church is to follow Jesus. So what we're going to consider as we go through this passage, three points, all beginning with P. This just came to me by the Holy Spirit yesterday. I love it. Number one, the point of life in the transforming community. What is the point? Number two, the practice of life in the transforming community. And thirdly and finally, the power of life in the transforming community. The point, the practice, and the power. First of all, what is the point of life in the transforming community? We've kind of discussed this already in some form as we've gone through the series. Look down at verses 1 and 2 uh, with me. Finally then, he says, brothers and sisters, the family of the church, uh, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, you do so more and more, for you know the instruction that we gave you through the Lord. To be a Christian is to live an ethical life. Christianity is an ethical religion, and what that means is it is, a, it is a religion that affects every part of your life. It should do. It is a religion that consists of morals and values. Do this, don't do that. Live like this, be this kind of person. And in some ways, Christianity, in this sense, is, is very similar to other uh, major world religions, giving advice on living well, 
how to achieve a good life, that kind of thing. And we've seen here in these first few verses, words like walk, doesn't just mean literally walk, but sort of the, way, the direction and the way of travel in your life, instructions, that kind of thing. So Christianity is, is an ethical religion. It gives you the ways to live. But what is the point? The point is there in verse 1, how you ought to walk and to please God. So the basis for all of our Christian living, all of our Christian lifestyle, all of our Christian ethics is to please God. That's, that's the point with the whole thing. To please God involves the use of our heart. It involves our desires. It involves our joy in pleasing God, even when it's costly to do so. Why is that? What makes a person want to please God? Not that you have to please God, but that you should want to please God. What makes a Christian want to please God? Because if we understand that, then we understand the basis of all Christian instruction. Why should we want to please God? Remember that this letter was written to a group of Christians in, in the city of Thessalonica, very new Christians. They were probably weeks, if not months old in their faith. They'd had Paul and Timothy and Silas with them for a few weeks to teach them the good news of Jesus, to sort of expound that, to demonstrate that in their lives. But as we saw last week, Paul and his friends were sort of torn away from them. They were kicked out of the city and there was that sense of unfinished business. We wanted to teach them more and yet we were, off, we were taken away, we were torn away. We learned in the first chapter that the, the Thessalonians were formerly pagans they, they followed this, the religion in, in the city, uh, the religion of idol worship. But then we saw at the end of chapter one, a radical change. It said, it's well known in the area that you, you Thessalonians, you little church in Thessalonica, you turned from God, so you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Their turning away from paganism became legendary in that city and further afield. So we need to ask ourselves, where did this change come from? And we saw that again in, in one of our early studies. The change came from, in verse 5 of chapter 1, the gospel, the good news of Jesus coming to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. What happened was they heard the good news of Jesus as preached and proclaimed to them by the Apostle Paul. The good news that although they were under judgment of a holy God, Jesus saved them through his death and his resurrection and he gave them a new life when they trusted in him. And so they heard that and they turned away from their idols and turned to God. But not only did they hear the good news, they experienced the good news. It caught fire within them. It got to the, the very root of their existence, into the deepest parts of their heart. The gospel owned them. It's not that the, the, the gospel was something that they mastered, that they suddenly understood it and all is well. What happened in Thessalonica was that the gospel mastered them. It overtook them. It sunk deep into them. That's how they ended up with such a change. Such a turn in their heart. Theologically, if you want some theological language to help you understand and communicate what this is all about, the term that is commonly used is regeneration. This was sort of predicted 
um, and sort of uh, explained by the Old Testament prophet, the great prophet called Ezekiel. He says this, this is God speaking to his people. I will, he says one day, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. And listen, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God promises through Ezekiel to give a new heart to his people that enables you to hear the gospel and trust in Jesus and receive new life. And when that happens, you get a new set of loves. You get a new heart, different passions, a different focus in your life. You move from being basically obsessed with yourself to being in love with God because you walk into a new relationship with God. You want to please him like any relationship built on love. You want to honour him. You want to make him happy. And so when this happens to you, when you are given a new heart by the work of the Holy Spirit, the way you live your life will just simply change. Your lifestyle will change. For some, very dramatically overnight. For others, slowly, bit by bit, their lifestyle will change to honour God and to love him. You know, there's plenty of reasons why uh, religious people do law-keeping, command-keeping. Plenty of reasons. In fact, I would say that even if you're not religious or <clears throat> if you know people who are not religious in any way, shape or form, they will still live to a certain set of values. Uh, an unwritten list of do's and don'ts. So actually, whether you're religious or non-religious, everybody lives up to a certain set of laws. Either from the Bible, some other holy book, or, or laws that are created by ourselves. Values for living. Religious people, generally, might do law-keeping for the following reasons. They might want to keep God from being angry, so they do their best to keep his laws. Keep him happy. They might do their best to keep themselves in his good books by doing things that they think will make him better, make him feel better about them. And whether you're religious or not religious at all, oftentimes law-keeping is just simply a way of feeling good about ourselves. When we've ticked a box and we think, yes, we've done that thing and God said to do this and I've done that and now I feel real good about that, that could be the motivation for keeping God's laws living to please him. In fact, we could even argue that our good works, such as helping other people, giving to charity, that kind of thing, is often driven, if we're honest with ourselves, it is often driven from a desire to feel better about ourselves rather than actually truly help the people that we're trying to serve. All of these I've just laid out are reasons why people feel like they have to keep the law. They have to obey God. But the Christian is different because the Christian realizes that he or she wants to keep the law. He wants to honor God. For some people, God is the boss. He's the slave owner. He's the headmaster. 
And so you have to serve him to either get paid or avoid punishment. But for the Christian, God is none of those things. God is a good father. For the Christian, he is a, God is a loving husband. God is a devoted friend. And so, a Christian lives to please God because of those things. How do you tell? How do you tell the difference between someone who has to please God and someone who wants to please God? Because if we're just looking at outer actions, they could be entirely similar. But the difference you will know, and this is only something you can tell about yourself, and you can't tell about anyone else with any degree of certainty, but you can tell about yourself, you will know that inwardly you're either keeping the law to avoid pain or to get some sort of blessing out of God's hands, but if you're honest, there is no heart behind it, there is no love behind it. You'll be keeping the law from a sense of grudging duty. It'll make you tired. It will appear to you relentless. It'll make you unhappy. And by the way, that includes Christians who do quote-unquote Christian ministry. But if you've understood the gospel, if you've understood Jesus and how he's radically transformed you and given you a new heart, then you will want to please God. You'll serve him from a place of joy. For him pleasing, so to you, pleasing God will be an honour. It will energise you. What about you here this evening? (coughs) When you're honest with yourself, are you living for God out of a joy? Or are you living for God just trudging through it? So what is the point of life in the transforming community? Number one, the point is to please God from a heart that is transformed. So let's get a bit more practical and a bit more specific then. Number two, we're looking at the practice of life in a transforming community. And Paul here in these verses spends most of his time identifying and highlighting two key practices that this specific local church in Thessalonica should do in order to demonstrate what it looks like to please God. And these two are relational purity, number one, and diligent work, or in short, sex and money. Why does Paul choose these two? It doesn't make it clear in the text. It could be that these two areas are the biggest threat to the new church if they understand it wrongly. It could be that Paul has already come to realize that they've started to make compromises already in the local church. It could be that because of the culture of the city in Thessalonica, they are most likely to influence the Christian community. We're not sure. But let's face it, those two practices, those two values are two that are really close to us as a church living where we live, living in the day that we live in. They are two areas and pressure points in which the church and the world are in conflict through our views and our values around sex and money. 
These two things are capable of huge good and blessing and building up and yet handled wrongly. They are capable of enormous damage. So first of all, what does it look like to please God? (coughs) One of the practices of life in a transforming community. Number one, it means to practice relational purity. Look down at verses three and four. For this is the will of God, he says, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you knows how to control his own body in the holiness and honor. And he says in verse 6, a bit, a bit later on, that no one, no one of you transgress and wrong your brother in this matter. Paul knows the, the damage that can be done within the Christian community when we're not practicing relational purity. Paul wants to be clear, we must live in relational purity. Look at the words he uses in verse 3. He says, God's will for you is your sanctification which means to be, made or to be made holy or to become holy. In, in verse 4, he says, control your body in holiness. In verse 7, he says, God has not called us for impurity, but holiness. In verse 8, God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. See, Paul's fear is that the society's values are going to start infiltrating the transforming community, and the result of that will be that the community becomes less and less transforming to the extent that one day it will look just like the world outside. This is not Paul just being prudish or just concerned for moral living in and of itself. This is Paul being very concerned about the boundary between the church and the world. Because once that becomes eroded, once that's gone, there is no church. We might expect immorality from outside just to be clear when Paul uses this term sexual immorality that phrase translates one Greek word (coughs) porneia which is where we get our word pornography from porneia is a broad term when you look at its use in the New Testament it includes any and every manner of sexual expression outside of a committed covenantal marriage between one man and one woman So any expression with anyone, any sexual expression with anyone who's not your husband or your wife is deemed as porneia by the Bible. But look at verse 5. Paul says, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles, listen, who do not know God. See, Paul is saying that we don't expect those outside the church to behave any differently unless you've been living on the moon over the last eight or nine weeks, you cannot have missed the coverage in the news about the Paddy Jackson, Stuart Olding trial, two Ulster rugby players held on charges of rape. And last week they were acquitted of their, tri- of their charges, found not guilty. And yet, whichever way you look at it, it highlighted how distasteful their behaviour was, how disrespectful their comments have been towards women, how misogynistic they have been, that is, using their male dominance and power to get what they want from women. And there was a huge outcry, uh, particularly after they were acquitted. There was um, protests on Friday night before the the game um, in, in Ravenhill. Actually, they ended up getting 
sacked by Ulster Rugby on uh, Friday night as well, these two players. But all this stuff about these individuals and what they did and didn't do, and the culture that they represent, all that stuff is outside the church. That is people who do not know God. And so why, in theory, should we expect anything different? In general terms, people who do not know God, that is the sort of, uh, the idea that there is no moral absolute, there is no God, there is no higher being. There's nothing to say to me what I can and cannot do to whomever I want to do it. If you don't believe in God, then there is actually no reason why people can't behave as they wish. It's simply a form of the strong dominating the weak. And as Christians, we must be sad about this. We must weep. We must be outraged when we hear these things in the news. But as Christians, we cannot expect our Christian values and behaviours to affect those who are not in the church, who are outside the faith. Jesus said earlier in another part of the Bible, don't expect fruit to grow on a thorn bush. He's saying for those who do not acknowledge God as their father and Jesus as their saviour, we shouldn't expect Christian values from them naturally. It's incredibly sad, but it's the reality that we live in. So what Paul is talking about in these verses here is not what's going on in the world out there among people who don't know God. What Paul is greatly concerned about is when those values from the unbelieving world start infiltrating into the church, into the transforming community. And so Paul is effectively saying in these, in these words, not you, not you, Thessalonian church. You are to please God. You are called to be holy. God wants your sanctification. He wants you to be more and more holy in his sight. And just to be clear, he says in the second half of verse 6, We've told you about this before. The Lord is an avenger of all these things. We told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Jesus will not turn a blind eye to immorality in his church. And therefore, neither can we. We can weep and be sad and upset by what happens outside. But inside, we cannot and must not allow ourselves to tolerate any form of immorality. Jesus hates it. And therefore, so must we. Even this week, there was news of yet another prominent evangelical leader who was forced to resign from his position as allegations of inappropriate behaviour came out. You may be familiar with Willow Creek Church and Bill Hybels had to resign from his position. Instead, as Christians... We are to value holiness. We are to value honour, love, respect. So to please, to, God, to please God, number one, we have to practice relational purity. Paul spends more of his focus on that. Maybe he thinks that is the bigger issue of the two. But then he moves in verse 9 to the second way that the, church, the local church in Thessalonica is to practice uh, to please God. Number two is to practice diligent work. 
Look down at verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more. I love these verses. It's not the first time we've heard about the love and the care of this early church for one another, for other Christians in surrounding cities and further afield. A beautiful picture, <clears throat> brotherly love. The word, the Greek word there is Philadelphia. And it's usually a word that's sort of applied to blood relations, you know, brothers and sisters in an actual family. But Paul uses it to describe the relationships within the church. That is how deep your love is to be for one another, he says. So Paul addresses again a threat or an issue within the church, either current or potential. And it is this, despite their love for one another, their legendary love for one another, and it is my prayer, by the way, that we at Foundation Church become legendary for our love for one another and for our city. But Paul identifies this problem. Despite their legendary love for one another, there are some within the church that risk abusing the system. It seems to be that most likely there were generous givers among the early church in Thessalonica, but others were growing a little too comfortable on the handouts. Paul is not concerned so much here about those who could not work for whatever reason and, and had to receive this help from within the church. He is concerned with those who would not work. We see it here. And in his second letter to the Thessalonians, his language becomes even more stark. His teaching becomes even more profound on this issue. It seems that there is a problem with idleness within the early church of Thessalonica. People not wanting to work. Didn't have to work. We can imagine maybe how this could happen. But Paul is saying here, if you name the name of Jesus, if you are a Christian in the transforming community, <clears throat> then, he says in verse 11, you are to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. <coughs> walk properly before outsiders. It means to win respect among those outside the church, to act decently before outsiders. As I said, some probably could not work because of age or ill health or persecution. But Paul was addressing those who would not work. He says, in order to please God, you must practice diligent work. You must provide for yourself rather than relying on others. You must honour one another and not prevail on another's kindness. You must avoid criticism from outside the church by working hard, working diligently. So to please God, we have to practice relational purity. And secondly, to please God, we have to practice diligent work. You can see in both of these practices how they impact in many ways, internally, how it can build up the church inside, externally, how it can have a witness to the outside world, and vertically, how ultimately these practices are our way, one of our ways of pleasing God. So we've seen the point of life in the transforming community. 
We've seen the practice of life in transforming community. And thirdly and finally, the power of life in transforming community. We can't forget as we read these kind of passages in the Bible that God is, so the Paul rather, is addressing a church. He's not addressing you and you and you as individuals. <coughs> you have the Holy Spirit, he says, yes. You have a new heart, yes. You have therefore new desires to please God, yes. But these things are not given to the church in isolation. In fact, I would argue that almost impossible to live out on their own, on our own. As if we go ahead, get saved, receive the Spirit, and then go off into the world to live it out on our own. God gives a new heart, he gives new desires, he gives the Holy Spirit, and then he places people in a new community, a new kingdom, a new society. He places them in transforming community, and for that reason, transforming community has great power to live in holiness, to live in honour, to love one another. And it plays out in these two ways. It plays out in gifts and it plays out in grace. That's how the power comes to us. First of all, it plays out in grace. You might be thinking as I'm, I'm going through here and talking about the practice of relational purity or the practice of diligent work, you might be thinking to yourself, that's me. That's, that's my temptation. That's my sin. I have fallen in that area. Either before coming to Jesus or even after coming to Jesus, that's me. I have not practiced relational purity. I have not practiced diligent work. You might be hearing this, reading these words, and filled with a sense of guilt. I've screwed up. The Bible teaches that all of us have fallen short of God's perfect ways, perfect requirements in one way or another. (coughs) And yet the good news of the gospel is that grace is available. God's unremitting favour is available to all people. And that is the power of the community of grace. That is the focus of the gospel. Paul writes elsewhere in the Bible, God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There was an exchange that happened. On the cross, Jesus became sin for us. He became sin in general, but we can push it further. He literally took upon himself your sexual immorality. He took upon himself your lies. He took upon himself your cheating, your manipulation, your greed, your laziness, your anger. And he took all of that to the grave so that in him and through faith in Jesus we put on the righteousness of God. That is Christ's perfect 
law-keeping. His perfect record of pleasing his Father was given to you when you trust in Jesus through the gospel. That is grace. That means that right now, God looks at each one of you and doesn't see your sin, doesn't see your immorality, doesn't focus on the times that you messed up, screwed up, hit the wall. Instead, when God looks at you and me, instead he sees the righteousness of his Son on you. The gospel of grace, you see, when you understand it, when you understand the implications of it, it lifts that sense of guilt away from us. It frees us from condemnation because Christ's righteousness is greater than your worst sin. And as wonderful as that is for each one of us personally to believe and receive, and so we should, it is not just personal, it is communal. All of us in transforming community are under grace. All of us have fallen short. All of us need the righteousness of Christ by faith. So there is no place in the transforming community for pride. There is no place in the transforming community for arrogance. There is no place for looking down upon one another. But there's no place for rising yourself up and looking down on people. In transforming community, we extend grace to one another. We forgive one another. We see the best in each other rather than dwell on each other's sins because that is what God does to us. The first way there is power in the transforming community is through grace, free and infinite. But the second way that power comes to us is through gifts. And that gift, quite simply, in the context of what we're reading, is, is one another. We are God's gift to each other. Because we are equally formed and transformed by the gospel of grace, and so we are therefore a community giving our lives to, we should be, a community of people giving our lives to one another. That's what we see in Thessalonica. Their love for one another became legendary. They were living the Christian life together. And so therefore, we see here the gift of local church membership. Recently we did this together. As a church, we made promises to one another to open our lives to one another, to live the Christian faith to each other to bless one another to connect with one another to pull one another away from sin when we see it in each other's lives to push one another towards Christ this is a gift and this is how God intends us to engage in the transforming community we don't get this power by living the Christian life alone or in isolation these gifts are woven through the letter we are God's gift to one another. How do we do this? With this we finish. How do we do this? How do we receive the gifts? How do we receive the power for transformation? Well, we do that, of course, every Sunday as we gather together for worship, a fellowship, deepening and developing what God is already starting among us. But let's not wait for the next Sunday for more power to do transformation. Because transforming community is more than what we do here on a Sunday. It is formal and it is informal. In fact, the majority of the time I would argue that it is informal, it is organic, uh, through one-to-ones, meeting up, 
encouraging one another, praying for one another, connecting with one another outside of uh, what we do here on a Sunday. So let me just finish this little message with a challenge for each of us here, myself included. Don't rely on structures and programs to embrace this gift of one another. Instead, let me challenge you by saying this. Who are you going to do coffee with this week? Who are you going to invite to your house for a meal by the end of the month? Who are you going to meet and read the Bible with? Who are you going to give a book to and discuss that book? Who are you going to pray for immediately and directly whenever you hear a need? Let me pray for you. Let's pray just now. As a community, a transforming community, let us devote ourselves to pleasing God with our whole lives so that many may know and hear about the good news of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your ways with us. We thank you for your grace that you give us in Christ Jesus. We thank you that although our sins are like scarlet, you wash us as white as the snow because of what Jesus achieved one day on that cross outside of Jerusalem and how the impact of that ripples through history to today. Father, I thank you for clear instruction in your word about how we can please you. Help us to commit as a church to practicing relational purity and diligent work. Father, I thank you for the power of transforming community. (coughs) That by your word and spirit, you give us one another to lean into each other, to point one another to Christ. So Father, I thank you for this group of people here uh, this evening. And Father, as we come now to taking the bread and the wine, the bread that points to the broken body of Jesus and the wine that points to the blood that was poured out for us, may you refresh us and renew us. May you send your power upon us as we look to Christ and eat of the bread and the wine. We pray these things in his name and for his glory. Amen.